Good morning, Veritas. How are we doing today? Doing well? Uh, if you guys didn't know, Matthew, in the last 11 years, just figured out how to get his training wheels off of his bicycle. So he knows how to ride now, and hopefully we'll get our training wheels off this morning as we learn what it looks like to go. Uh, but hope you guys have had a great summer. I remember uh, a friend a couple of years ago as I stepped into parenthood told me, hey, Jordan, here's the trick for summer with little kids. He said, moments are fleeting, but memories are forever. So don't worry about all the small moments. Focus on making memories with your kids. And that's been something I've tucked away for the last couple of years and hope to live out uh, as I continue to parent currently three little boys. Uh, but it, it does ring true that memories last forever. I've seen this over the last month. My wife and I went back home to northwest Iowa, small town Manson, near the Fort Dodge area, and we went home uh, as I was asked to fill the pulpit for one of my friend's churches who was on sabbatical. And so I stepped up, uh, and at that church, heard a repeated theme, and it was, you look just like your dad. And I'm like, yeah, I know I do. I'm still 5'7". This mustache is still here, just like my dad's, and I'm getting older. Go figure. Uh, but this memory of my dad means something because he passed away in 2016. Went to be with the Lord in 2016, and uh, every time that I'm home, I'm kind of brought back into this space of thinking more frequently about my dad. And with that come, obviously, a lot of great memories, but also some really challenging memories. I remember in 2016, I was working in the insurance industry in Waverly, Iowa, and I got a phone call from my mom. My dad had been on hospice at this point for almost nine months. And when I got the phone call, I knew it wasn't good. She said, Jordan, I think you should come home. And so I got in my car, I drove home, and for the next two weeks, I remember pretty vividly, uh, sitting in my living room with my dad as he was all but wasting away. And uh, when I think about those two weeks, it wasn't full of, you know, liveliness and great storytelling. It was filled primarily with silence and tears, um, moments of pleading and pain. But there was this moment, uh, the night before my dad died, where he had what has been described as kind of a come-to moment. Maybe you've been in the room with somebody who's, who's died and you've experienced that, or maybe you've heard of this before, but it's this strange phenomenon where people who were once comatose are suddenly aware of their surroundings, they're fluid in thought, they know who's in the room, and I was able to have a last conversation with my dad. And I'm so grateful for that. Not everybody gets that, but I was able to have this final conversation with my dad. And he was dying from COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It's essentially where your lungs begin to fail and you die by suffocation. And so you can about imagine, as he's about to speak his final words, he's not ready to small talk with me. He's ready to talk to me about what matters. And not just what matters a little bit, but what matters most. And as I was able to sit by my dad's side, hold his hand, and look him in the face, 
Here's what he said to me. These are his final words. He said, Jordan, keep following Jesus and take good care of your mom. And I will never forget that. I will never forget that moment. I will never forget those words because they were calculated. They were purposeful. My dad was speaking from the heart about what mattered most. Keep following Jesus and take good care of your mom. And as we get into our message today, we get an account of more final words. I mean, last week, Ian came and he taught about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would be quite okay with this Life of Christ sermon series ending there, wouldn't we? Like, Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died in your place. But he didn't stay dead. He resurrected. He conquered sin, Satan, and death so that you could be brought back into a right relationship with the Father. That is the good news of the gospel. And honestly, the story could have ended there. Matthew could have closed his account of the gospel of Matthew, and we would all be satisfied. But here's what's true. The story doesn't end there. We get an account of more final words. Jesus actually has this interaction with his disciples one last time before ascending into heaven. And so maybe you got a program as you walked in today and you saw the title of the the sermon is The Orders of Jesus. Now Jesus has lived, he's done ministry, he dies, he resurrects, and now... He is about to ascend into heaven, and he has final marching orders for his disciples. He has final words that he needs to speak to them. And much like my father, Jesus is not here to small talk. He's not here to, you know, talk about insignificant matters. He's going to speak to the disciples, and he's going to speak to us this morning about what matters most. So think about it. What do you think... Jesus would say in his parting words as he ascends into heaven, what matters most to Jesus? If we're not really familiar with the text, we might think Jesus would say something along the lines of, hey, be kind to everybody. Make the world a better place. You know, fight back against injustice and oppression. Feed the poor and house the orphan in your community. Maybe he'd say something more introspective. Maybe he'd say, hey, follow me as best as you can. Read your Bibles every day. Pray to me every night. Follow me no matter how hard it gets. Stand firm in in the face of persecution. But here's what's true, Veritas. Jesus doesn't say any of that in his final words. He doesn't say any of that. And it's not because those things are not important to Jesus. It's not because those things don't matter. The reality is Jesus has a primary order for us. Something of higher significance that he is leaving his disciples and he is leaving us with this morning. And so we have to ask the question, what is this primary order of Jesus? As we open up to... Matthew 28. So if you have a physical Bible, I would invite you to open with me. Matthew 28. Like I said, last week we covered the death and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew 28 is an important 
chapter for us as Christians to defend the resurrection of Christ. On the front end of the chapter, you see Jesus first appear to two women by the name of Mary and Mary. And here's what's true. If you were making up this story of the resurrection, you would not create it in such a way that Jesus shows up to women. Because in the biblical era, this would have discredited the account. But Jesus shows up to women to, number one, say, I value women, and number two, to create a historical account that is true and recordable and easy to defend. So he shows up to Mary and Mary. He says, hey, go and tell my brothers to come meet me in Galilee. Meanwhile, these soldiers know that Jesus resurrected. They meet with the chief priests and elders, and they are undone. They recognize that Jesus has defeated the grave. He is the Messiah, and they cannot stand it. They are fearful of what might happen if the gospel goes forward and pushes back against their religious power. So here's what they do. They concoct a lie. They make up a story, and then they pay these soldiers to say, hey, go spread this lie so that the gospel will not advance. And then we get to this last encounter that Jesus has with his disciples. We're going to pick up in verse 16. Verses will be on the screen for us. The word of God says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. This is a fascinating account. Just imagine, you were once back in the city. These two women, Mary and Mary, come to you and they say, Hey, we just saw the risen Jesus. He wants to meet with you. Come with to the mountainside in Galilee. Jesus said he's going to meet you there. And so you go. You go to the mountainside in Galilee. And there you see Jesus Christ face to face. For many who had gone with up this mountainside, they're looking at Jesus up close and personal for what is likely the first time. This Jesus who a few days before they stood off at a distance as he was mocked, beaten, spit on, ultimately crucified. They stood back at a distance as their closest friend and believed Messiah was killed. And now he's face to face with them. His nail-scarred hands are apparent. He is real and he is alive. And you're there. You have a front row seat. What's your reaction? Well, the text says here, and it says, they saw him and they worshipped him. This is believed to be they, the eleven disciples. And if you would read other gospel accounts, here's what you know to be true. This account in Galilee is not the disciples' first encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He's shown up to them in other places before to show him that he is real, he is alive, he has defeated the grave, and so their appropriate response is worship. Jesus is not alive to shame them, but to pursue them. He is alive to breathe confidence into them and for them to bow down and give him the worship he deserves. 
But then you see another response. And perhaps an appropriate response too. It says, some doubted. Now there's confusion, there's debate around who this some might be, but people that have researched this text and written on it for hundreds and hundreds of years have come to this conclusion that based on sentence structure and what it means to truly worship God, this sense of doubt leads us to believe that perhaps there's a second group. It's not just the 11 disciples on the mountainside of Galilee, but perhaps a larger band of brothers, people who were associated with Jesus, that he called to the mountainside to interact with him. Now, we don't know for certain, but Paul says in his letter to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 that at one point, Jesus appeared to more than 500 men. Perhaps this is that account. We don't really know. But what we do know is that Jesus would frequently go to a mountaintop and teach crowds of people. And there is a crowd that has gathered to interact with Jesus. And you have the 11 disciples worshiping, but you have some who are doubting. Now, the word doubt here does not actually signify disbelief. It's not like they were questioning whether this was the real Jesus. Is this a hologram? Like, they didn't have virtual reality back then. They weren't worried about that. No, the word actually gets at uncertainty about what to do. Their doubt had more to do with what do we do next? How do we respond? What is our appropriate action step? If Jesus has really conquered the grave and resurrected, this has real implications for our life. What are we to do? And it's to these two camps the people who are all in with adoration and the people who are uncertain about their next action step that Jesus speaks his final words. Here's what he says. Pick back up, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now this passage, maybe your, your Bible has a heading at the top of it that says, The Great Commission. How many of you guys have heard this passage before? Hopefully many of you. Uh, this, is, this is a keynote text in the Christian faith. And my hope is that if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you have heard this passage. It's really important. This is our purpose in life. But here's my fear as we open up to the Great Commission this morning, Veritas. My fear is that many of us in this room know these verses, but don't actually believe them. We're familiar with these verses, but they don't actually shape the way we live our lives. Because ultimately, we can tell what we believe in by observing how we behave. Let me give you a couple examples. Any Hawk fans in the room? A couple of you. Hey, any Cyclone fans in the room? There we go. Louder. Louder and prouder. Not better at football, but louder and louder and prouder. (laughs) 
Um, I'm a cyclone, by the way. That's why I can say that. A um, couple weeks ago, I hopped on Iowa's football schedule as a little test run. I was doing this on purpose, and I scrolled to the bottom of their schedule. And there's an important date, if you're a Hawkeye fan, on that schedule. It's December 2nd. How many of you know what that is? The Big Ten Championship in Indianapolis. And somebody within the Hawkeyes administration believes enough that the Hawkeyes can win the Big Ten West this year, so much so that they put it on their schedule. And now, if you're a Hawk fan in the room who is a diehard, who actually believes the Hawks stand a chance to win the Big Ten West, here's what you ought to do this morning. Go home and book your hotel room in Indianapolis. Just go do it. If you actually believe they'll win the Big Ten West, you should go book your hotel room because you will get it at a better price and you will get a better choice on where you're staying if you book it now than if you wait till the end of November. Go book your hotel room in Indy. I saw several parents walking in with little kids. I have three little kids, two of whom are potty training. And I can tell whether or not I believe my kids are potty trained based upon how I dress them for a road trip. Right? If I believe my children are potty trained, I'm putting them in underwear, not in pull-ups. Do I believe they're potty trained? I don't know. It's about as bold of a strategy as Hawk fans buying a room in Indy right now. Now, both of these examples prove that we believe certain things and they shape our behavior. And as we look at the Great Commission, we are given one command. One command. Do you know what it is? The command is to make disciples. Make disciples. Jesus, in his last words, speaks a calculated order to his people, and he says this, Go make disciples. Make more of others of what I have made of you. And, and the tense here is incredible because this is not an optional thing and this is not a temporary thing. This is a mandatory, ongoing process for anybody who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. Make disciples. And as Jesus looked out at a broken world, he ultimately does not need just more nice people who care and who are passionate about earthly pursuits. That's not what Jesus needs. It's not what this world needs. No, Jesus gives this command, make disciples, because he knows that this world needs more Christian people who, yes, of course, care, but are not passionate just about making this world a better place, but are passionate about eternal matters. Things that will far outlast our time here. Make disciples. So, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you see this command, make disciples, and our response should be, okay, Lord, yes, I'll do it. But how? How do I make disciples? Well, the good news is our text helps us. I mean, grammar geeks in the room, you probably figured this out already. There's three words that are participles or supporting words that help us understand how we 
obey this command to make disciples. We're going to walk through them together. The first is go. How many of you know what go means? How many of you hate raising your hand in church? Sweet. Uh, We all know what go means, don't we? I mean, it's hard to come up with a definition without even using the word. Go means go. Or if you want an actual definition, to go is to proceed or move from one place to another. To proceed or move from one place to another. And in a previous interaction with Jesus, his disciples encountered him. This is in the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, the resurrected Christ comes to them and says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Jesus has told his disciples, remember how I had to come to you because you couldn't come to me? Just how the Father sent me? Okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm ascending into heaven, and now here's what you need to do. Follow my lead and go pursue people. Live sent. To be a Christian is to be sent. But you might say, sent where? We ought to be sent anywhere the Lord calls us. Yes, where our feet are planted, but wherever he might lead us next. Around Veritas, we've said it this way, we should be intentional wherever God has us and be willing to go wherever God wants us. To be intentional wherever God has us, that means today, as you leave, you are sent. You're sent to a neighborhood. You're sent to a family, a friend group, neighbors, maybe co-workers. You leave this week as a sent people. But we can't miss, in the Great Commission, where the disciples are sent to. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Of all nations. And we as a church just spent a significant amount of time in this last year unpacking Genesis and Revelation. They're these bookends of our Bible. Genesis, this origin story of where did we come from? What were God's intentions? And in Genesis 12, we get the story of God coming to Abram and making a covenant with him. And here's what the word of God says. God speaks to Abram and says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is at the beginning of the Bible, that God has a global, all-earth mission. And then you get to the end of your Bible, and you get to the book of Revelation, and this guy by the name of John gets a vision from the Lord, kind of a peek behind the curtain of heaven, and this is what he sees, Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. From Genesis to Revelation, this all-earth response of worshiping God 
pastor and author John Piper has said it this way. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Why would God call us to go into all the earth to make disciples? Because all the earth deserves to worship Jesus. And Jesus deserves all the worship of the world. Can I get an amen, church? It's just true. But then, we stop and we look at statistics about the state of the world today. 3.37 billion people, 42% of the world's population, do not have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Out of 17,000 ethnic groups, there are over 7,000 who have no access to the gospel. And when, when you look at numbers about unreached people groups in the world, the word unreached does not just mean that there are not people in those ethnic groups who have not yet believed in Jesus. That's not it. It's that they do not even have the opportunity to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ because nobody's there to tell them. They don't know a single Christian. There is not a church they can attend. 3.37 billion people who can be born, live their entire life, and die condemned to hell because nobody has told them about the good news of the gospel. That ought to mess us up a little bit. Because as you look at the Great Commission, and as you look at the state of Christianity in 2023, one of two things has to be true. Either Jesus misspoke, or we're not listening. Either Jesus misspoke, or we're not listening. And I think we know which one it is. If we see this theme from Genesis to Revelation, every tribe, tongue, and people... And yet, 42% of the world has no access to know about him. And we can't even get to the second participle if we don't do this, if we don't go. The second participle of, of baptizing has to do with people who have responded in faith and have given their lives to Jesus Christ. How many of you want more people to surrender to King Jesus? Hopefully all of us. Now... How's this going to happen amongst the nations? Paul tells us, actually, in the book of Romans, in chapter 10, here's what it says. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. No matter what ethnic group, no matter your skin color, no matter your country of origin, all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's amazing news. But then you get these questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. If we want to be obedient to this command to make disciples of all nations, we have to be willing to go. 
And as we go, and as we faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's what will happen. Here's what will happen. People will respond in faith. Because Romans 1.16 says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Maybe you've heard this quote before. It says, Proclaim the gospel, if necessary, use words. It's common in the American church, and I just have to say, it's a load of baloney. I understand the sentiment is to say, let's not live a two-faced life. Let's just be nice to people. And to that I say, yes, let's be nice to people. Of course. How are we going to win people to Christ if we do not model Christ to them? But also, to say, proclaim the gospel if necessary, use words is about as foolish as to say, feed the poor, if necessary, use food. Because Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It does not say, being nice to people is the power of God unto salvation. No, we are commanded to go and proclaim the gospel, that God created us to be with him. We have turned our back and rebelled against God. Rather than following him, we have tried to become our own gods and we have distanced ourselves from him because he is holy. But God would not leave us that way. He would send Christ in our place because we couldn't measure up. So Jesus measured up on our behalf. He died in our place, took the wrath of God for us, and he resurrected. And he's coming back to judge all who do not respond. That is the good news of the gospel. To go and to tell people this good news and say, What do you think? And as we see in the book of Acts, here's what happens. Some people have hardened hearts and they turn their back. And some people say, what must I do to be saved? Wouldn't you love that interaction? Like, what must I do to be saved? Gospel, right in front of you. This is the miracle of salvation unfolding before your eyes. And here's what's frequently said in the book of Acts. Repent and believe and be baptized. It's the second participle. And I want to be clear that baptism is not what makes somebody a disciple, okay? There's really nothing special about the water. This isn't some, like, funny, mysterious thing where we stir the waters and somebody gets saved. No. Romans 6 unpacks baptism as a normal response of a Christian to unite themselves with Christ, To place yourself in a body of water, to go underneath, to say, just as Christ died, the old me is dead and gone. To come out of the water, just as Christ resurrected from the dead, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. And it's a command to be baptized. To unite yourself with Christ in this symbolic practice in front of a church a faith community who can say, yes, we want to celebrate what God's done in your life and we want to help you follow Jesus. That's what baptism is. It's an opportunity for us to worship King Jesus together and it is a step of obedience. Now, one thing I've seen over the last several years is that many people feel awkward about baptism because it's supposed to be a mark of Christian beginning. Of Christian beginning. And there are people who have followed Jesus for decades, who have 
not yet been baptized. And they're left feeling awkward. And they're like, what do I do now? This was supposed to be a mark of Christian beginning. Well, is that good enough reason to not be obedient? If you follow Jesus for decades and have not yet been baptized, the urge is, be obedient. Get in the waters. Be baptized the next time a baptism service is offered. But on the flip side of it, there are many people who are relatively new to faith, look at this act of baptism and they say, I'm just not ready yet. Baptism is a mark of Christian beginning, not of Christian maturity. It's not a matter of you figuring out your Bible enough. It's not a matter of you praying hard enough. It's a matter of you being obedient. If the gospel has made you new, to enter into the waters and to proclaim that in front of a faith family who can help you follow Jesus, to be baptized. But if baptism is just a mark of Christian beginning, what else is there to disciple-making? Perhaps the greatest tragedy in the American church comes with missing the next participle, which is teaching. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You'll note that Jesus here in the Great Commission does not say, go and make converts of all nations. No, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. And the word disciple itself means learner or follower. Which means we cannot simply go towards people, proclaim Jesus, get them in a body of water and say, good luck. No! We have to do a much better job of training and equipping and helping them know what does it actually look like to follow Jesus? What has he actually commanded us to do? What does it look like to submit your life to the authoritative rule and reign of Jesus? And we need each other, church. Nobody's exempt from this. Teaching. There's two realities happening at the same time. On one hand, you need to be taught. Somebody needs to teach you how to follow Jesus. You cannot figure this out in isolation. You need somebody. But on the other side, somebody else needs you to help them follow Jesus. We all have something to learn and something to offer. To teach others how to observe all that Christ has commanded us. So there it is. There's the orders of Jesus. Make disciples. Make more of others what Christ has made of us. And how do we do it? We do it by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. It's really straightforward. But it's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? It's a hard command to obey. If I were to ask you, how's it going? What would your response be? If you're anything like me, you look at a text like this and you feel convicted. You feel confronted. You see how easy it is to have fallen short in obedience. But I want you to put yourself back in this story, okay? Imagine you're one of these men who have climbed up the mountainside in Galilee And Jesus is giving you marching orders. Do you think his goal is to make you just feel like you are inadequate? 
Do you think his goal is to make you feel shame based upon your performance? Absolutely not. When Jesus shows up to the 11 disciples, to the crowds, here's his goal in giving this great commission, to spur them on to obedience. And yes, it has a tough pill to swallow. How many of you have ever either heard of or utilized what's called a compliment sandwich? You heard of that before? So when you have, you know, corrective course of action to give to somebody and you know it, but you're going to kind of soften the blow by giving a compliment on either side of it. It's a terrible HR strategy, by the way. But as we look at this text, Jesus does something similar here. Perhaps not a compliment sandwich, but a promise sandwich. Because he knows that this is a hard command to obey. And he doesn't want to just give you the command. He wants to give you two promises to actually help you obey. And I think a huge part of our lack of obedience is because we have failed to believe the two promises that surround the command. I want to look at them together. The first is this, the promise of Christ's power. Before the command, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus here is fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel 7. I'll read it out loud for us. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus here is to proclaim his power. I am king. I cannot be defeated. My kingdom is forever, for all places, for everyone. Jesus had previously told his disciples, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's here to proclaim his power, and it's meant to, number one, confront our kingdom. It's meant to crush our kingdom, because his kingdom lasts, which means ours cannot. He is Lord, meaning we are not. But it's also meant to instill confidence in us. As we consider living out the Great Commission, many of us lack confidence. We lack the confidence we need to go. Because we think about what's going to happen. You know, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to the people I proclaim the gospel to? And here's what Jesus would tell to you. The kingdom belongs to me. I have authority. I have power. And I'm sending you in that power. Right? In Acts 1.8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He gives us his power to go. And how does he do that? Well, he does that through the second promise. Christ's presence. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always to the end of the age. I mean, God appeared to Joseph in Matthew 1, beginning of this gospel, and he says, here's what you should name Jesus. Emmanuel, which means God with us. And here's Jesus saying, I'm with you always to the end of the age, no matter what happens, whether it's in power or in pain, whether it's in people responding with repentance or rejection. I'm with you. 
So you don't have to play the what if game. What if this divides my family? What if this breaks up my friend group? What if I'm with you? And in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. We have all the belonging we need because Christ is with us. It's meant to be a comfort. Yes, to get going, but also to keep going because we will face rejection. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. Right? So when we recognize these two promises, God's power and God's presence, it spurs us on to obedience. It takes this command from something I have to do to something I get to do. I get to go in his authority, and I'm given the promise that he's with me always. So here are the orders of Jesus, Veritas. Make disciples with confidence in Christ's power and the comfort of his presence. Make disciples with confidence in Christ's power and the comfort of his presence. That's what we're called to do. And so how do we respond? Well, first and foremost, you can't just obey the command without first believing the promises. You have to believe the promises first. That he is Lord. That he has come to save you. That he has power. That he is mighty to save. And that he's with you. Even now in your darkest moments, that he is with you and he is begging for you to be close to him. Do you believe that? And if so, let's be obedient. Make disciples. Maybe you need to start praying, Lord, who are you sending me to? And don't just pray this once. Pray this every week. Lord, who are you sending me to? Maybe he'll bring somebody to mind this week. But as you pray that time and time again, Lord, who are you sending me to? Maybe he'll send you to somebody that's not across the street, but across the nation. Maybe not just across the nation, but across the globe. To commit to praying, Lord, who are you sending me to? As baptisms roll around to ask the question, have I been baptized? If not, why not? And if you have been baptized, every time you see a baptismal tank, to be asking yourself the question, is anybody being baptized because of my faithfulness to the Great Commission? It should confront us. And lastly, teach. Find somebody to teach. And find somebody to teach you. I mean, there's a book in Info Central that talks about how can I find somebody to disciple me. Maybe you need to read that and take its advice to commit to the teaching process of discipleship. And here's the reality, Veritas. This church exists because people went. All the way back to Matthew 28. This church exists because these men were obedient. And much more than that, this church exists because 70 people who were going to church in Cedar Rapids said, we want to see the gospel in Urbana, Centerpoint, Vinton, Shellsburg, all the surrounding communities, and Lord willing, to the end of the earth. I mean, we all get to be here today because somebody came to us. And the question we have to ask is, will anybody be able to say the same about us? I'm only here because Brock shared the gospel with me. I'm only here because Veritas Urbana decided to plant another church in rural Iowa. I hope so. 
that somebody someday, somewhere, will say, I'm here because Veritas Urbana was faithful. And as we say in our mission statement, this is not to glorify our name, is it? It's to glorify God because he deserves to be worshipped by every people in every place, in every community in Iowa, in every country across the world. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thank you that you did not stay dead, but that you resurrected. You defeated sin, death, and Satan on our behalf. And you are now seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered around the throne. They will worship you in spirit and in truth because you deserve to be worshipped. But God, please... Have mercy on us this morning for our passivity, for prioritizing our comfort rather than obeying your command. And help us believe these promises, Lord, that you have all authority. Christ, that you are powerful, that you are mighty to save. Not just us, but the people you're sending us to. And help us be comforted by the fact that you are with us always to the end of the age on our best days and on our worst days, that you have made yourself known, that you are near, and that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And as we do that, God, we pray that more and more people would come into a saving relationship with you, that they would give you the honor, the glory, the worship and praise that is due unto your name, because you alone are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.